It's philosophy talk. You know, George, the ocean called. They're running out of shrimp. Can studying moral philosophy make us more moral? Oh, yeah, Ron. <laughs> well, the jerk store called. They're running out of you. Can studying moral philosophy make you more of a jerk? But I'm a If professional moral philosophers can be rude, selfish, and inconsiderate, why should the rest of us feel bad about being jerks? What does that mean? Hey, here you go. Hey, Riley, the zoo called. You're due back by six. If you devote your life to thinking about ethics, do you have to act like a moral saint? Our guest is Eric Schwitzgabel, author of A Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures. Jerk store is the line! The ethical jerk. Jerk store! Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This holiday season, give the gift of thought. Support the thinker in your life with a gift subscription to our library of more than 500 episodes. More information on our website, philosophytalk.org slash purchase. Can studying moral philosophy make you more moral? Are there other ways to become a better person? Or should we all just settle for moral mediocrity? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about the ethical jerk. The ethical jerk? That's like saying the round square. It's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> well, you obviously haven't spent enough time in philosophy department meetings dealing with quote-unquote ethicists who actually act like jerks. <laughs> Fair enough, but I feel like we have enough jerks of our own in literary studies. I'm not sure that's going to be unique to philosophy. Right, but you don't have that special kind of jerk I'm talking about. Like the kind who devotes their entire life to thinking and writing about morality and ethics. And then is just rude or selfish or inconsiderate or worse. Worse? Yeah, you know, like they become famous for writing about racism and misogyny and justice. And then it turns out that they have this long history of harassing female students of color. Yikes. Yeah, okay, that is bad and deeply hypocritical. But isn't that kind of behavior to be found everywhere. I, I, I'm not sure why you're focusing specifically on badly behaved moral philosophers. Well, you said it. It's hypocritical. Hey, take the badly behaved moral philosopher Immanuel Kant, who is famous for the categorical imperative. Wait, don't tell me it turns out that philosopher said it's always wrong to lie was like a, a pathological liar. Well, I don't know if he was a liar, but I do know he was a racist, sexist jerk who defended slavery and treated women horribly. Yeah, well, look, I'm not going to defend anyone's outdated views or bad behavior. My thought there would just be that, you know, maybe Kant was a product of his time. I mean, even David Hume, who was pretty good on many subjects, wrote that he suspected white people were a superior race. I mean, that's a horrifying view, but it clearly was pretty common back then. So what? That doesn't make it morally acceptable. Besides, Kant and Hume invented new philosophical foundations for so many of our basic concepts. So how come they never even questioned their belief in the natural superiority of white men? 
Okay, so they definitely weren't moral saints. <laughs> they sure weren't. But isn't it unfair to hold people who were alive centuries ago to today's moral standards? Okay, okay. Forget about Kant and Hume and Aristotle and Nietzsche and Locke and Heidegger. <laughs> okay, all right, I get it. Fair enough. Touche. Okay, seriously, forget about the dead white guys. Let's talk about living ethical jerks. Isn't it fair to judge them by today's moral standards? Yeah, the, absolutely. That's totally fair. I mean, look, people who hold themselves up as moral authorities and then go around doing exactly the thing they're telling other people not to do, yeah, they're definitely jerks. Still, does that mean that moral philosophy as a whole is like a, a bankrupt enterprise? No, not necessarily. Moral philosophy could at least help you understand why those people are jerks. Look at us conceding each other's points. Yeah, not all philosophers are jerks. Hashtag not all philosophers. And hopefully we're also not totally hypocritical, unlike certain long-cherished historical figures. The recent wave of Black Lives Matter protests have forced many of us to grapple with the racist past of some icons. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to investigate the recent calls for removing statues of some famous hypocrites from history. She files this report. On the eve of Independence Day 2020, the hit musical Hamilton began streaming on Disney+. Plus. I am not throwing away my shot. Yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. And there was a lot of criticism about how the musical deals with slavery. Hamilton leaves out that George Washington was a slave owner. Only Thomas Jefferson is criticized for owning slaves. A civic lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the South, we create and keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. Barack Obama has described Hamilton as a story for all of us and about all of us. But Hannah Robbins, an expert in musical theater with the University of Nottingham in England, says while the musical is exceptional, it also omits history. There is a problem with making all of these characters neutral when they weren't. Even though we have people of color and many black actors on stage, there are no black people in this story. Robbins notes that the antagonist in Hamilton, Aaron Burr, was played by a dark-skinned actor, while the heroic Hamilton had lighter skin, and the female characters were little more than love interests. And the role that the white characters, these often black actors, are playing in the slave trade is never addressed. And I think that that is a tension and a limitation of the vision of America that it's putting forth. Removing the history of the people you are promoting is limited and also incredibly painful. This debate spans beyond musicals. If you look at the history of the Founding Fathers, you'll find complex, contradictory people, says Manisha Sinha, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Even some of the slaveholding Founding Fathers are a lot more complicated uh, than the Confederate generals and politicians who openly proclaimed the righteousness of slavery. Thomas Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, but he also enslaved roughly 600 people, including Sally Hemings, who birthed six of his children. The more you get to know of Jefferson the person, the more unlikable he seems to me as a person. Uh, as somebody who wanted to put up this public face of anti-slavery and moral virtue, but who never really did anything to free his slaves. 
Because of this, activists have pushed to remove his statue, along with the statues of other slave owners, like George Washington and Ulysses S. Grant. Isaac Bailey, author of the forthcoming book, Why Didn't We Riot? A Black Man in Trump Land, says these conversations about statues usually miss the bigger picture. And at first, like, actually just deal with our really painful history. Bailey says we don't need to cancel George Washington. We just need to understand who he was. We have not declared in one really, really unified voice that slavery like, is an unequivocal evil in the same way that we view the Holocaust, for instance. Bailey knows about grappling with complicated public figures. In 1995, he attended the Million Man March, a call for unity among African-American men. He says he needed that day like he needed oxygen. As of 10 o'clock this morning, we reach one million black men. That march was organized by Louis Farrakhan, the head of the Nation of Islam, and a man known for blatant anti-Semitism. That event was um, so powerful and so beautiful that I actually think of it anytime that I sort of like actually get down. And yet I sort of like actually struggle with that tension. Most people would not tolerate a statue dedicated to Farrakhan, Bailey says, because of his anti-Semitism. But slavery is not treated in history books with the same disdain. He says telling accurate, truthful history about America's so-called heroes is necessary. Our willingness in order to really, really grapple with all of this anew is sort of uh, like much more important to me than sort of uh, like which statue uh, uh, sort of uh, stays or goes. Hannah Robbins, the expert in musicals from the University of Nottingham, says popular culture has a role to play here. It's not a piece of textbook that is being disseminated to every student uh, in the world, but at the same time, it has a massive reach. And outside of America, there is a lot less familiarity with the history of the period. Hamilton ends with a song about who gets to be remembered. His wife, Eliza, becomes the gatekeeper of her husband's legacy, and she sings about where he fell short. I speak out against slavery. You could have done so much more if you only had time. But up until the very end, her character is kind of bland, so it's not clear if she's up for the task of telling the real messy history we need right now. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Damick-Deed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.